at home. And a welcome to those who might be watching online, some of our homebound or those that have an illness or visitors and friends we haven't met. Feel free to come and join us for worship here at Clifton Park Community Church. We're starting Luke chapter 6, and uh, we're looking at verses 1 through 11 today. Let me read from God's holy, inspired word. On a Sabbath, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking at them all, he said to them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may the Lord bless all who read, hear, believe, and obey his word. Amen. Amen. These two paragraphs are both about Jesus getting pushback for how he behaved on the Sabbath. And that was the special day of worship in the Old Testament. We'll explain that first and then look at these portions uh, and see what they teach. You see, the origins of the Sabbath day aren't just uh, a Jewish law that started with Moses when Moses got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The seventh day, the Sabbath, that's what it means, the seventh, the one in seven, goes all the way back to creation week itself. You can read about it here in Genesis 2. The first few verses of Genesis 2, the origin of the Sabbath day. There we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the, it's anchored in the creative story of Genesis. And when the law did come to Moses, we know that there's a commandment number one, two, three, and four. And when you get to commandment number four, Exodus 20, verse eight, it begins with the word, remember. Because it harkens back to what we call a creation ordinance. 
not just a Jewish thing, a creation ordinance that the Lord gives one day in seven as a holy day of rest and spiritual worship and reflection. Exodus 28, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the fourth commandment is rather long. It goes on to say that you don't work, your wife doesn't work, your servants or employees don't work, nobody works. And that was the emphasis because God set the pattern that there's a ceasing from work that you might make something holy, that you might set it apart. And we'll see some of those purposes today. So the Sabbath day, that's the occasion. Jesus being raised a Jew and living among Jews, observed the Sabbath. He kept the Sabbath and he did not break any Sabbath laws. But we find his encounter with the Pharisees here at the opening paragraph of Luke chapter 6. Jesus was walking on the Sabbath and he was going through a field of grain with his disciples and they were eating some of it. And the Pharisees who had begun watching Jesus like a hawk, they pounce, they accuse them of breaking the Sabbath, of misusing the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees had her tradition uh, of defining what work was illegal on the Sabbath. And that would include um, both uh, uh, reaping and threshing. You know what reaping is. That means getting the grain or the, the food product out of the ground or out of the trees and into your baskets or into your shawl or into your hands. Reaping, you're taking. And then threshing, which is handling the grain, getting the husk off so you have the grain remaining. You've heard of the threshing floor or gathering in and washing the figs and taking off the leaves. That was work. But they also said what the disciples did was reaping and threshing. That's why they're so upset. They thought that the disciples grabbing a few grains in their hands was illegal. You see, they had over 39 types of work that were illegal that the Mishnah records that the rabbis taught very consistently. 39 So you better not be doing any of the following according to them. Weaving two knots or making two loops. I suppose that has something to do with crafts. Um, You're not to tie a knot or untie a knot unless one rabbi's tradition was if you only used one hand, it wasn't work. And uh, sewing two stitches. You might have to sew one stitch in emergency to repair, but you don't sew two because that becomes work. And so they defined for everyone their interpretation of God's law. And they imposed it on everyone, and they're accusing these disciples of breaking the, the Sabbath. Why are you, plural, doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Well, we have news for the Pharisees. The disciples are not breaking the Sabbath. They are not misusing the sabbath the pharisees were misusing it because of their rule they did not know the scriptures you can jot this down or maybe it's in the the cross reference to this text deuteronomy 23 there are verses i'm going to read them to you that say it's okay to do exactly what these disciples did so the pharisees are absolutely wrong and we can prove it with a bible verse Here's the verse, Deuteronomy 23, beginning in verse 24. If, and it's just a chapter with a collection of miscellaneous laws, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, 
but you shall not put any in your bag. I kept that verse in because I thought that set the tone. You can pluck as many grapes as you want. 25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, a field of grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain and harvest it and steal it. So you can do what the disciples were doing. It was permissible. It was not work. It was not wrong. The misuse was really on the part of these critical Pharisees. But Jesus doesn't quote from Deuteronomy 23, which surprises me. Jesus often surprises us. Rather, he brings out a lesson that's that's really the equivalent of a sledgehammer answer to what they're saying. He's going to argue by a more unusual, complex, and grand event from the Old Testament, which will make the disciples' behavior seem small. So Jesus is going to argue from the greater to the lesser, from the complex to the simple. And I think he answers in this challenging way. It's hard for us to follow sometimes because of who he's dealing with. These teachers of the law needed to know more that they were not violating the Sabbath, but they needed to know who they were talking to. So Jesus steps it up and he quotes this episode that's found in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 21. We're not going to read that passage, but if you remember 1 Samuel, we preached on it not too long ago. There's a sermon somewhere on the internet on this chapter. David was on the run from Saul. He had been anointed to be the next king. He was the Lord's anointed. And that word anointed is very significant because Christ is the Greek word for anointed. Messiah is from the word anointed one. David was the anointed one, but he's on the run. He's being persecuted and hounded. And he and his disciples were starving. And they come into the town where God's uh, tabernacle was. The temple had not been built. It's a tabernacle, the portable. And they're starving. Do you have any bread? No, we only have the bread that's up on the altar. The show bread, the King James calls it. The bread of the presence. It was there, 12 loaves representing the tribes of Israel uh, before the Lord. And at the end of the week, when they brought in the fresh bread, the the, uh, Levites and the priests got to eat the showbread, but only they were supposed to eat it. That's explained in Leviticus 24. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Uh, Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. There's the recipe if you want to make some at home. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of all the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. It says it's for them. It doesn't explicitly say no one else can eat it. It says it's their bread. I would assume that if it was their bread, they could share it with someone in need in an emergency, as was the case. Ahimelech was the priest on duty uh, at the, uh, the tabernacle, and David said, you only have that bread. And Ahimelech knew that David was in need, and he said, here, take this. It was given to David. David didn't take it. 
the Lord's anointed was provided for, and David gave it to his men as well. Preacher Philip Ryken says, what David did, this is his take on it, violated the ceremonial law, but it was still the right thing to do because it was necessary to help people in need. Ryken says, God always desires mercy more than the observance of sacred rituals. And he cites Matthew 12, which we'll see in a minute. What the disciples did on the Sabbath, he says, was not a violation of the law at all, the disciples. It was perfectly proper. Like the men of David, they were in the service of God's anointed one, Jesus. They were on a holy mission and they had a physical need. Why did Jesus walk them through the grain field in the first place? Typically, you walk around the fields and the orchards, but perhaps Jesus took them there that they might be fed. Surely the anointed and his followers, says Dr. Joey Piper, may break a man-made law while they are doing the Lord's business on the Sabbath. So Jesus gave that lesson to the Pharisees to say that there are certain things that are greater than the traditions and the ceremonies of the Sabbath and they revolve around the Lord's anointed and emergencies and health needs and hunger. What is the point? Jesus is saying that mercy is equally important. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said this, And it's Matthew's telling of this same event. He has an additional verse that Luke hasn't included. Matthew 12, 6 and 7. I tell you, Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament in Matthew 12. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless says, you guys might be experts in persnicketiness and observing the minutia, but you're missing the big picture. The big picture, because all scripture speaks of the Messiah. All scripture speaks of what is good for God's glory. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. These things fulfill the law, and you're missing that dimension in your interpretations and applications. Or as Mark says in his account of this event, Mark 2, 27, very simply, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We were not created just to jump through some hoops that God had made for jumping through. But rather, the Sabbath was made and designated. When God created the world, God designed for this pattern and rhythm with a purpose. And before we're done, we'll we'll see what that purpose is. The Sabbath was made for us. Jesus is trying to get that through to these Pharisees. The Sabbath was made for man. And as he finishes that lesson, he says this in verse 6, and I've made it a heading all its own in today's sermon. Luke chapter 6, verse 5, excuse me. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, there are two titles in that verse. From the lips of Jesus, his most common designation for himself. He didn't walk around saying, hi, I'm the Messiah. I'm the child that was called Emmanuel, God with us, citing 
Isaiah 7, 14. No, he called himself most frequently the son of man. But it is a title of divinity taken from Daniel's book. So it had meaning for those who understood the scriptures. It was provocative with those with, for, who had ears to hear. But he's not simply calling himself the son of man. This is the second time he's done that in Luke's gospel. He also did it in, in Matthew, excuse me, in Luke chapter 5, which was just above. He was healing a paralytic. And at first he said, your sins are forgiven. And they laughed. Only God can say that. So Jesus says, which is easier to say you are forgiven or to say rise up and walk. Uh, Luke uh, 5.24. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So Jesus had introduced this title, the Son of Man. And what had he done just previous to this? In the presence of the Pharisees, Jesus had said who he is. The Son of Man has authority. That was probably a new bee in the bonnet of the Pharisees. What? Did he use Daniel's title, the Messianic title for himself? Surely, did we not hear him say that? And he did this miracle? Hmm. And they begin thinking. And they don't connect the dots properly. So now, as Jesus finishes uh, putting them in their place for misunderstanding the Sabbath and accusing guys who were guiltless, Jesus now says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He ups the self-disclosure. He ups the ante in this ongoing situation with the Pharisees. Luke has given several titles along the way, by the way. You remember how Luke described Jesus in chapter 1, verse 32, Son of the Most High? Or how the angels declared in Luke 2, 11, a Savior who is Christ the Lord? Jesus is being identified as we go along. And, and even in Luke chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus, verse 22, a voice from heaven had said, This is my Son, my beloved Son. Listen to him. My well-pleasing Son. So the gospel is all about who is Jesus. And we don't want to miss that. Jesus had begun teaching. He's the son of man. And now he adds this title, Lord of the Sabbath. Why does Jesus pick that? Well, I think the Pharisees were acting as lords of the Sabbath. We've practiced this, Jesus. We've worked this out. We know what's right and wrong in the Sabbath. And he says, no, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus was there in creation when the seventh day was established. Jesus is God. Jesus, God incarnate, present on earth, is the most capable one in the room to interpret the Sabbath and to tell what is right and wrong on the Sabbath. But they just don't get it because they're entrenched in their traditions and their interpretations. Jesus has authority to forgive sins, as God alone does. Jesus has authority to interpret the law. And when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will make that very clear. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus is Lord. Lord of the Sabbath and Lord. He has authority to do all these things. So what does the Son of Man, Lord of the Sabbath, do? Well, he does two things. He does 
a rebuke to these religious leaders, and he still endorses the Sabbath. I want to make sure we see that. When he says he is Lord of the Sabbath, that's his authority. And what has he done with that authority? Well, he has rebuked those religious leaders who had it wrong. Do you remember what he said when he brought his lesson back in verse 3? Jesus answered them, have you not read? That's a rebuke. You guys are throwing about your rules that are copied down at the rabbi convention, put into the Mishnah. Have you not read? Is a pointer to the scriptures, the word of God. So there's a rebuke for these religious leaders. Later on, Jesus would, in Matthew 25, 23, 24, 25, the Olivet Discourse, he would have much to say to the Pharisees. And many of them would come in the, in the course of several refrains, woe to you. And in case you're not clear on that, to have Jesus, the Son of God, say, woe to you ought to make your heart race. And the Bible is filled with such language. Our culture doesn't get it. They think it's only, oh, just love everyone. That's the golden rule. They they run roughshod over all that the Bible says. But the Bible says to people who counted themselves spiritually mature, uh uh-oh, to people who were very religious, he said, be careful. And in the case of these Pharisees, woe to you. It's very pointed, condemnatory language. One example, Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, you know, donate, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. That's Jesus' phrase. And then he explains, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy... And faithfulness. These you ought to have done. Without neglecting the others. You blind guides. Straining out a gnat. And swallowing a camel. Doesn't say that the first time. Jesus gives a rebuke and he tries to teach him scripture. But by his authority he will continue to rebuke the religious leaders who should know better. And before I move on, as I've made clear, those of us who count ourselves as spiritually mature, that we think we understand the Bible, must always take heed that we're understanding it properly. And that we're not paying attention to our favorite parts of the scripture and neglecting the weightier matters of the law. You may feel good because you've mastered some things, There's some things in here that are weightier and more difficult. And God wants us to give attention to them. In fact, I think that woe is a tremendous commentary on this whole passage. There are weightier matters than how many grains did I pluck? Was I threshing? Come on. As Philip Ryken said here, spot on, he said, it's not simply that the Pharisees were too strict. 
They did not understand the true inward purpose of the law, which demands love for God and love for our neighbor. Jesus' summary of the commandments. So Jesus, who's Lord of the Sabbath, he has a rebuke for the religious leaders, and he does endorse the Sabbath. Some people misunderstand this passage and think Jesus was doing away with the Sabbath altogether. No, it doesn't matter what you do on the Sabbath. No, that's not what's happening here. The Lord of the Sabbath is a present tense title. Jesus continues to be Lord because there continues to be a Sabbath from the creation. And remember, it's not just a mosaic thing that disappears. The rituals and the ceremonies around the Sabbath may disappear. But the one day in seven belonging to the Lord, a day for holy worship and loving your neighbor in special ways, that remains. The Sabbath is a provision and a picture of our salvation, of our rest, of our receiving graciously God's provision without working for it. The Sabbath is a profound picture of grace. And you know, every time Jesus spoke of the Sabbath, it was to correct the abuse, not to abolish the Sabbath. Just because it's abused doesn't mean we get rid of it. A lot of things in the Bible get abused, but we don't get rid of everything. We correct the abuse. That's what Jesus was doing. You look, every time he doesn't abolish the the Sabbath. If we had time, I would take us through Isaiah 58, which is an Old Testament prophetic correction about the Sabbath. People were fasting in, in peculiar ways and doing their religion in different ways while not having their heart in it. And the chapter, Isaiah 58, write it down, check it out later. It has that phrase near the end, if you delight in my Sabbath, if you understand what it's for, everything will be good. But they didn't. So Isaiah 58 was trying to get people to look on the inside, not on the outside. And then in the New Testament, you would also want to study Hebrews 4 and maybe have a study Bible, a study partner, or a commentary. But Hebrews 4 is very clear that the rest still remains. Now, we typically don't call it the Sabbath in our evangelical circles. We call it the Lord's Day or just Sunday. The first disciples called this one day in seven the Lord's Day. And it was changed from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. We don't have time for that history lesson, but if you read the book of Acts, that's what happens after the resurrection. On the first day of the week, they were gathered. The first day of the week, it became the Lord's Day. They call it the Lord's Day in the book of Acts. Later on, John will call it that in the book of Revelation. The Lord's Day, the first day of the week, because Christians had moved past the old name of the Sabbath, but they still had one day and seven. And it was at the beginning of the week because our enjoyment of salvation and rest has already begun in the church. That's what's going on here. A lot to study. I'll leave it to you to follow up. We've got literature if you want to study the Lord's Day and that transition. So Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, rebukes the guys who got it wrong and still endorses the concept. Our final heading this morning is this. The Son of Man is full of mercy. And then we come to this next paragraph that's linked because it's another Sabbath objection. And Jesus doesn't just fight the same battle again. He kicks it up a notch because the Sabbath isn't just about what you don't do. 
It's about what you do do. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. I call these, as you can see in the sermon handout, judgmental and do-nothing Pharisees. There's a guy with a withered hand. They're not saying, oh, brother, let us help you to your seat. They're not saying, oh, brother, let's get some balm and salve and oils and we'll see if we can treat your hand. We'll come over and pray with you and your family. They're not saying those. We don't have reports of those things. They might have done those things. We don't know. But when they're presented, they appear to be the do-nothing, judgmental Pharisees. And these are religious leaders who are very good at being Jewish on the outside. But something was missing. As J.C. Ryle says, what excessive importance hypocrites attach to trifles. That's these guys. Because there was an opportunity here for mercy to be shown. Right? So that was the setting. They're watching Jesus like a hawk because they want to pounce on him. He got the better of him with the food thing. But now we're watching. Are you going to heal on the Sabbath? Why would that be illegal? Because, again, they had these rules of what was work. It was so discombobulated. Verse 8. But he, Jesus, knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. So right in front, because Jesus had been teaching. And he, stood, he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or destroy it? And verse 10 seems to imply he looked and looked and waited for an answer. After looking around at them, Jesus wanted an answer. It was a sincere question. It wasn't some hypothetical question. It wasn't some rhetorical question. Come on, you guys are the leaders of this synagogue. Should we do good or not? We have an opportunity. This brother is suffering. I can heal that suffering. I can do something about that. Which is it? Now, in the Jewish practice of the day, the Sabbath, you didn't work unless it was a work of piety, a work of mercy, or a work of necessity. Um, you know, so if you cut your arm and it was bleeding, it was necessary that you wrap that arm and probably use more than two stitches. But piety, someone had to bring the sacrifice and prepare, so piety and, and works of mercy. Those were commonly defined. And Jesus here is drawing on the opportunity for mercy. Douglas Milne says, by putting the argument in this form, Jesus moves beyond the particular commandment about the Sabbath to the general moral principle behind all God's commands. That is, human well-being and life. God's commands are for us to live by, to find life. Do this and live. You be like a tree planted by streams of living water whose leaf does not wither, and all that you do will prosper. To live according to the law. But they were missing that with their external focuses. Jesus asks the question, 
And then Jesus acts in mercy to heal the man. What do we conclude? Well, as one preacher put it, there's more to godliness than simply staying away from certain kinds of personal sin. God wants us to have a heart for people in need. Oh, Jesus got too close to the leper. Oh, Jesus was healing on the Sabbath day. What a shame. Someone went home healed on the Sabbath day. It's, it's a heartless mindset. One of the disciples was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. John the disciple, perhaps the youngest. Some think he was even a teenager in beardless youth when he followed Jesus. That's how he's portrayed in, in Western art because of the tradition. Jesus spent a lot of time with him. And Jesus, by providence, allowed John to live the longest, we know. He uh, was off on the Isle of Patmos, and he received some inspiration to write some letters. He received the the book of Revelation there, John the Apostle. In 1 John, which is a lot about love and living a Christian life, not as a hypocrite, but as a true lover of others, John chapter 3 Verse 16 and following, we read this pertinent passage. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has, John 3, 17, 1 John 3, 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. It almost sounds like Scrooge. But this is scripture. Sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That's scripture. That's the heart of God through the pen of the Apostle John to us. It has echoes of what Jesus is trying to teach these Pharisees in the synagogue. Should we do what's right or not? Should we help or not? And Jesus asked them. They didn't want to answer, it seems. Because Jesus continues and he speaks to the man and heals him. Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. That's just faith in the word of God. That's almost a picture of our salvation. Jesus says, come and I'll forgive you. Okay, I'm coming. By faith, I'm coming, Jesus. But we're not preaching about him coming to Christ, but we're seeing his interaction with these Pharisees. The man was restored. Verse 11 The scriptures say, but they, the Pharisees, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let me just clarify that. They didn't huddle in the back room and have a little conference and order some coffee and start making notes. The word here for fury is a significant word. In Greek, it means an unthinkable Rage, almost like a kind of madness, says one lexicon. That's not preacher hyperbole, that's the lexicon, the dictionary 
of the Greek language. The word here for fury or rage is like, I can't get too loud. They were wound up tight. And they didn't just have a discussion meeting. They began to plot to harm Jesus. Their hearts not only missed the opportunity for mercy, but they were exposed for what they were. And the works of darkness that were conceived in their hearts started to come out. And you know who's violating a commandment? It's not Jesus or the disciples violating the fourth commandment. It is these Pharisees violating the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Because even Jesus says, if you desire to murder someone in your heart, you've already broken that commandment. You men that are looking at the externals, you're upset that a guy with a withered hand is healed. Really? Are you that cold-hearted and callous? Yes. Because in their heart, they were plotting the murder of Jesus. My friends, the Bible speaks very clearly about the dangers of sin, even among religious people, as well as in the world. We should strive to be mature religious people. We should strive to be mature religious leaders. But we must do so as disciples of Jesus in the whole word of God. Not focusing on externals or our favorite trivialities, but the things that matter most. In closing, let me just remind you of these three things that have emerged from our study of God's word this morning. Number one, do not treat your traditions as God's laws. Do not treat your traditions as God's law. Can I step on some toes now? I hope it's safe because we've seen how important this is. Many Christians today would recoil if you sent your child to a public school as opposed to a Christian school. Oh, wait, 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 Pastor, that's a no-brainer. You know, the public school. Is there a scripture? There's a tradition there, and, and, you know, personally, I recommend Christian schools. I recommend homeschooling. Don't, Don't get me wrong. I've got a track record in this area. But can I look at someone who sent their child to a public school and treat them like the Pharisees treat Jesus? On what basis? Again, I'm just thinking of some examples. Uh, I can put myself in the crosshairs. Some people might say a pastor who drinks a beer is a godless, worldly man because he drank an alcoholic beverage. Drunkenness is forbidden. I've never been drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. But do we make our traditions laws for others? Teenagers who go to rock concerts or a young girl who wears makeup? I mean, where where do your traditions begin and end? And we have to be careful how we grew up that my tradition seems very holy and established and well-grounded. Well, maybe not. And as radical and as troubling as some of these suggestions might be, I think today's text says be very careful. Because we see where Pharisees come from. And it's easy to pick on them without holding the mirror of God's word to ourselves. So be careful. This is what I'm saying. Don't treat your traditions the way you obey the scripture as necessary for everyone to obey the scripture. And and there are gray areas. And sometimes rules are very helpful in the gray areas. So don't 
exaggerate what I'm saying, but don't underestimate it. We don't want to sit as an editor over the word of God. We don't want to sit as a judge over all believers using our own experience. Second exhortation is true. Godliness means active love for God and neighbor. True godliness, true Christ-likeness means you love God and you love your neighbor. Jesus explained the whole law in two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And in these two episodes today about the Sabbath, we see that the Sabbath gives us an opportunity to do both, to love God. It's a day set aside for worship and reflection, time before God, enjoying his grace. But it's also a day of opportunity to witness to the world and to do acts of mercy. And finally, I think what Jesus longed for these Pharisees, he longs for everyone that we would give our heart to the Lord, that we would give our heart by faith to the Lord. One commentary said, the gospel is shown to be a matter of the heart, the heart of faith towards God and a heart of compassion towards others. Sounds a little bit like 1 John. You can't love God and hate your brother. This is true gospel life. Living not merely according to the rules, but also in faithful obedience to God's purposes revealed in the law. To love your neighbor as yourself, as well as to love God. My friends, these are the things we're learning from the gospel. May God help us. Or as John said, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for the gospel of Luke, how it has really stirred up our thoughts on this day of worship. Father, may your word continue to work upon us, to chisel away our rust and barnacles, religious or otherwise, and make us more and more Christ-like in every way. May we be holy, may we walk in holiness, and may we patiently, graciously, and mercifully love others as we do. We ask for your help and your blessing for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.